Chris Burns. Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Welcome everyone to the Playground Podcast. And we are very happy today to welcome Bob Moog, who is president and co-founder of University Games. Bob, thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks so much. Well, we are we are still, Bob, as are you, we are isolated, uh, but yet we are not because uh, we can have this little bit of technology here to help us connect with each other. Bob, why don't you uh, start just telling folks a little of the story, the history of University Game. The company is, it's kind of an old-fashioned story. It's not really the way people, I think, start companies these days. I got out of graduate school and wanted to start a company. And I was trying to think about what to do. I'd never run a company before. I was 20, 28 years old. And... Uh, I was single, and so I got together with a friend of mine who was an accountant at Price Waterhouse. His name's Chris Lehman. He's the co-founder of the business. And we said, okay, let's start a company. And he said, I think we should do a tech company, maybe something with CAD CAM. And I said, no, I want to do something either with beer, ice cream, <laughs> or toys. Those were my three choices. Yeah. Beer, yeah. ice cream, or toys, and all three. And we're into. We're, we, at the time, we were in Palo Alto, California, and this is during one of the very early tech booms when CAD CAM systems were just getting started. And I, I was looking and I was thinking, well, if we do something in technology, we won't really be able to talk about it because it'll be top secret, and I won't really be able to understand what we're doing. But if we <laughs> did beer, ice cream, or toys. I think that might work well with dating in the 1980s. <laughs> and so we looked at beer, and beer was going to cost too much to build a brewery. It was right when the laws had changed, so you could start doing microbreweries. Now, that would have been a good choice in retrospect. That's become a huge, huge industry. And the Dove Bar had just come out. It's hard to believe how long ago it was that I started the company. The Dove Bar had just come out. So the idea that you could buy ice cream bars for more than 50 cents was a new concept. But we were afraid... You know, we wouldn't understand how to keep things cold. And then the third was Trivial Pursuit had just come out about 18 months earlier. And I said, I think being in my 20s, I can invent games as good as Trivial Pursuit. You know, you are that way when you start. You have incredible ego. And so we decided to do that. We took all the money in the world that we had, which was $20,000, and we started University Games. And our first product was the Murder Mystery Party, where you invite people to your house and you try to solve a murder. And to commemorate the beginning of the company, our, our incorporation date was April 1st, 1985. So we're an April Fool's. <laughs> That's great. Was, was that How to Host a Murder? How to Host a Murder was our competitor. Okay. And it's really kind of interesting. Um, How to Host a Murder started in Virginia just about, I, I think we both launched at the same show, which was the May stationary show in New York in 1985. And the guy that ran How to Host a Murder was a guy named Warren. His business model was to be uh, everything murder. And our right. business model was to sell games to um, college kids, to universities. And so our original concept was to distribute and manufacture for college students and sell only in college bookstores. That was the original concept. That's where the name University Games came from. We ended up outlasting him. He went up and down, and in about eight years, I think, was, was gone. And we continued to build the company, and we went far beyond college bookstores. 
This is 35 years. April 1st, 2020 was 35 years. Wow. And Chris Lehman, my, my co-founder, he retired about two years ago. So th this, is a, this is more impressive, I think, than University Games, is that I started the company with someone when I was in my 20s. And when he hit 60, he retired. And we stayed together as partners uh, running a profitable business for 33 years, and he's still on our board of directors. That, to me, is the bigger accomplishment. So let's talk a little bit about what we're going through right now. One of the things that I keep hearing is that Target is reporting that they're doing really well with games right now. We're in the middle of this whole coronavirus uh, situation where we're all physically distant. What's going on for you guys as as you go into this year? For me, business is more is about more than just making money. For me, the reason I've been able to keep doing it, and, and I'm still so excited about it, you can probably hear it in my voice, is uh, because there's so, so many challenges. The toy industry can be intellectual if you let it be. It can be, let's just make schlock and sell it, or it can be intellectual and it can actually be really rewarding. And right now, uh, the last year has really been one of those periods because we start we we started about two and a half years ago with private equity coming into the board game category and international companies have come in and watching how they acquire companies and how they do things is very interesting um, and to compete against them is really difficult if you're a bootstrapped company like us uh, even after 35 years we can't really stand up to some of the private equity firms. If they want to throw their money at Buffalo or Play Monster, they have the ability to do a lot more than, than we can do. So that that's a challenge. Then you layer on top of that the tariff situation last year. And are we going to have a tariff? Are we not going to have a tariff? We're going to have a tariff. And how do companies plan for that? And how do you manage inventory and cash flow and pricing? And then as soon as the tariff was over, within 30 days, the coronavirus hit us. So I'm loving... Um, the challenges, and I'm, I'm, I'm really finding it exciting and stimulating to figure out how to navigate and build a business with all of this stuff going on. Uh, and in the middle of it, Toys R Us went out of business. Uh, Kmart, you know, is, is, is basically gone. Um, so we have retailer consolidation. But for us, through all of these things, we run our company kind of the opposite of how the president runs the country. We really try to prepare ahead and we really try to have a plan B and a plan C. And execution is really, we, we believe good execution is gonna trump good ideas. And so um, we're, in, we're, we're, having, we're in great shape. We have, because we thought the tariff was gonna happen, we overbought in December and January, <laughs> and then the tariff didn't happen and we had too much inventory. And now we're one of the few companies that's able to fulfill all of its orders. We'll start running out of inventory in the second half of April. But up until now, we've been able to ship almost every order complete, and um, and business is really good. And I think it's for two reasons. One, board games uh, and toys in general are anti-recessionary. And secondly, everybody's at home. And so we, we're getting a better chance than we've had since the invention of television to actually sell to people. It's kind of amazing. People are opening their eyes and saying, why not board games? Why not puzzles? You talk about venture capital and investment and stuff, but it really comes down to a good game. Trivial Pursuit came out of nowhere. Three guys out of Canada. Pictionary was three guys in Seattle, Washington. The game, rather than necessarily the money, is what determines success. Yes, those are great examples. Um, Cards Against Humanities would be another great example. A couple of kids in Chicago going on to Kickstarter. The, the issue with... Um, 
the private equity for us is that when there is a great game or there is a great license, they can pay more for it. Mm -hmm. They they aren't. De- I'm not saying they're developing any better product than they did before, but they're able to go out and acquire it and able to pay more. They're also able to hire more people, and by hiring more people, you have more more connections out in the world on product. You're just able to do more, and so. You're absolutely right. The, all the money, you can give me a billion dollars. I'm not going to be able to come up with better games than I come up with now as a game inventor. However, if there is a game out there and, and I've got more people to go and find it, or there's a trend I want to ride on, or I want to promote, um, the private equity money allows you to do more TV advertising than a company like ours can do. If I could just go back to coronavirus for one second, I was <clears throat> you were mentioning about how you've got inventory. So what what is the status of your factory relationships in, in China? How are they doing? Are they up and running again? Okay. Um, all of our factories are up and running. It's a little bit tricky. And, and I've heard Jay Foreman talk about this. You have to go deeper than just ask the factory, are you up and running? Um, because the office may be running, but the factory may not. The factory may be running, but the subcontractors may not. The subcontractors may be running but the paper mill may not that makes the paper and sends it. So you have to go through the entire supply chain to really understand what's going on. And our factories right now are telling us that they're anywhere from 80% to 100% full capacity. I I think they're at 50%. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that they're being optimistic. I think they might have one or two hours a day when they're at 100%. But in terms of the weekly production of our factories, they're somewhere between 50 and 70%. And that's okay if you're a major supplier. We tend to be one of the top three uh, customers for all of the factories we work with. So we are able to um, take all of the orders we have with them and we can prioritize them and reprioritize them so that we're able to get product made quicker. A smaller company would be in a lot bigger trouble right now on, on supply chain. So what is your prognosis, sir, for the rest of the year? What we're doing is we're trying to manufacture in India and Thailand. We're trying to, we already were starting this with the tariffs. So um, the problem is that India is shut down right now too. So long-term, I think the smartest thing for people to do is to find alternative sources outside of China. Because I think, I just have this instinctual feeling, it's, I have no data, that we're going to continue to have issues with supply chain from China over the next couple of years. It'll be all different things. It could be government stuff. It could be um, shortages of containers. It could be shipping schedules. I just think of the wise thing to do is to have other supply. For the industry this year, I think it's going to vary factory to factory and company to company. If you're more printing-based, you're going to have an easier time getting supplied. If you're more plastics-based, you're going to have a harder time. If you are Wood-based, it depends on where your factories are. If they're in certain parts of China, you'll be okay. If they're in other provinces, you're going to have trouble. So I think it's really going to be different with every company. But I think in general, China's going to be at 100% up and running before the United States is. University Games is more today than a game company. You've, you've created something much bigger. Can you tell us a little bit about greater University Games? University Games, when we founded it, the idea was, the original idea was that I was going to invent games, and then we were going to sell them to college bookstores. And we also distributed for other companies. Uh, we were the original distributor of the Aerobee, which um, Spin Master now owns. We, we were a distributor to college bookstores of the Rubik's Cube and Rubik's Magic, which <laughs> we 
worked with Tom Kalinske um, on when he was at Matchbox back in the 80s. And the idea was that I would invent games and then we would sell them. Within two or three years, we realized two things. One, I wasn't that great at inventing games. And that was the first thing we realized. And then the second was I couldn't invent enough to really satisfy the beast. And so we made a decision probably two years in that we were going to become a global company. And we wanted to have at least 50% of our sales outside the U.S., this was made very early. This is a very unusual strategic decision to make. Very few toy companies um, have, have tried this. And it's, and it's very risky. So we started opening up international subsidiaries when we were doing less than 10 million in sales. And our first one was in Australia, which is still operating. It just celebrated its 25th, 26th year. Our second one was in Europe, in Holland, in Maastricht, uh, Netherlands. And our third was in the UK. We also for a short time had a subsidiary in Canada, but now uh, we ship them direct. Our concept was to be global. And our concept was to try and bring learning and fun to America's families and families around the world. In 1998, this is a long answer, I apologize, Richard, but um, I'm getting there. <laughs> in 1998, uh, I was at a board meeting and one of my board members said, um, and remember our company's based in the Bay Area, so we're in Silicon Valley. He said, you know, we just invested, he, he had a, venture, a small venture capital fund and he said, we just invested in this company and they're selling Pez dispensers on the internet. And I think you guys should try to sell games on the internet. This is 1998. So Amazon was just getting started and just only selling books at that point. And I said, I don't even know what the internet is, you know, <laughs> and, and nobody had email. I mean, in 1998, it was just, and he, he said, well, here's what you do. And so we did that. And we, we, we sold about $40,000 worth of games at Christmas in 1998. That's pretty and, impressive, actually. Yeah. And then in 99, he said to me, you need to go out and raise money and start another company. And I said, why? He said, well, that Pez company, it's called eBay. And it's doing really <laughs> well. <laughs> so one of my board members was an original investor in eBay. And so we started areyougame.com as a separate company. And areyougame.com, it's A-R-E-Y-O-U-G-A-M-E, was intended to be a company that would help all the small and medium-sized companies get distribution. This isn't going to resonate with people in 2020, but in 1999, when I went to all my competitors and said, how would you like to have a retailer who's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, who never asks for markdown money, who always pays their bills, and who will carry all, all your products 20, uh, 12 months a year? It was really easy to get supplies. <laughs> nobody, nobody was doing that. Everybody else right. was fighting for shelf space at Toys R Us. Yes. You'd maybe get 10% of your product line in. You only, you know, it was a very seasonal business. And we all thought if we only could get on an equal footing with Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers, we could be as big as them. That's what you think when you're a small company. Right. And right. this would allow people to do that because on the screen, they would be the same as Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers. They'd have the same shelf screen. And we set it up. And areyougame.com is a, uh, it has the largest selection of games and puzzles of any independent site with 4,000 titles. And we have a warehouse in Kansas City. And anybody in the world now, it was just the US, 
can order games and puzzles from us. We also offer third-party shipping for people like Kohl's and Walmart and Target. We have 22 partners where we do third-party shipping. The good news is we've accomplished what we wanted. We've created a place where small companies and companies that are just starting can have distribution. The bad news is that it's never been very profitable, except for the last four weeks. <laughs> it's been amazing the last four weeks. So we, we, are, we are considered in the definition of an essential service because we deliver directly to people's homes. And we are getting letters. We are getting um, Yelp reviews. People are just going crazy for areyougame.com. And um, the site itself only does about 5% of the business. If you people go to the site, we're going to be rebuilding the site. But the business at Christmas time during season peaks at 16,000 orders a day. Wow. Right now we're doing about eight to 10,000 orders a day. And I love it because it's, it's allowing people to get games they can't find other places. Now in 2020, you can find them, most of this stuff on Amazon. We've built the business and it's a really nice business. And so University Games has three parts. We have a U.S. domestic business. We have our global business. And then we have RUGame.com, which is our direct. And that brings us to a, a conversation about e-commerce in general and something that that we've talked about, which is where do you see e-commerce impacting the overall industry right now? I think it's all about e-commerce. I think that the Walmart is finally waking up and Walmart is really investing heavily in e-commerce. But it, to me, it's just kind of a logical thing. If you go and you ask someone, how many times a year do you go to a toy store? You know, their answer is going to be three or four. Right. How many times a year do you go to a Walmart or a Target? They might say once or twice a month. How many times a year do you go to the grocery store? Maybe once a week. How many times a year do you buy something with your phone or on your computer? And most people are doing that 50 times a year, 100 times a year. People are buying so much. I mean, I'm older, so I don't do as much of it, but I still probably buy things 30, 40 times a year on, on, on my phone or on the computer. So people are on mobile. People are on their laptops. That's where they're spending their time. That's where they're shopping. That's where all consumer products should be focused, in my mind. And the people that are focusing there are winning, and the people that aren't focusing there are falling more and more behind. And we're seeing it with almost every retailer. I think we've reached a point where shoppers are more comfortable with buying online than they've been. I think that Walmart's played a big role in that, in converting a lot of their consumers uh, into online shoppers. And I think that people are not scared about putting their credit card into, <laughs> into that computer thing so much. I think time and the mobile phone have been the number one reason people have gotten comfortable with shopping. Once you get comfortable with the mobile phone, your credit card's out there. And so that hurdle is kind of over. I think Walmart is actually number two. I agree with you, Chris. And I think that the coronavirus is going to turn out to be number three. I think that there are millions of Americans right now who do not want to go into a store yes. um, and they're buying online and they may be buying online for the first time or maybe they've done it before, but they, it isn't a habit. Right. And I think we're going to come out of this and the numbers are going to just blow everyone away on what percent of commerce this year is done online. And then I don't think it's going to bounce back. It'll go back a little bit, but it's not going to go back all the way. Retailers have to change. If they want people to go in their stores because for a millennial and for a Gen Zer, they don't understand why they want to waste gas driving to a mall. They don't understand why they want to waste time finding a place to park. 
they they don't understand what the utility is of doing anything other than buying online. They don't get any social value out of it. And frankly, objectively, and a planet that's in the shape this planet's in, I think they might be right. I mean, I think it might not be actually makes sense to get in my car and drive five miles and park it and then go stand in line to buy something when I can do it by my phone. Bob, you have touched on University Games and you talked about your distribution company, but you didn't mention what you're doing now with uh, Gucci Studio. In sort of the the guise or in the, the, the realm of people buying more online and me thinking that e-commerce is the way people should be going and they should be looking at direct-to-consumer businesses. And the retailers should too. And I think the retailers are learning. We're seeing some really interesting things happening at Walmart. And I think Target is also starting to understand more uh, about the importance of selling. But you also have to market that way. How much time does the average person spend watching TV versus on their phone? So when you promote to people now, and, and, and we've been talking about this, we being game and toy manufacturers for several years, but it's, it, I think we might've been a little ahead of the curve. People need to be marketed to online. It, it. It's all about the millennials and the Gen Zers. It's not about baby boomers anymore. The millennials, the younger millennials are 24, 25 right now. The older are 36, 37. They have children, they are the market for toy and game manufacturers. Where do they spend their time? Where do they live? Well, they live on their phones, they live on their tablets. So if you wanna communicate with them, if you wanna be trend forward, if you wanna be fashion first, you gotta be on there and you have to be doing things. And the idea that we had was to create the equivalent in 2020 of what Ted Turner created with CNN in the 1980s. And all games, all the time, everywhere you go, channel for people to come to. And that's what UG Studios is. UG Studios is not intended to just be a promotional site for university games. A lot of people have done YouTube channels, and what they're doing is they're just increasing their social media reach. So they're looking at what they're doing on Instagram, Pinterest, and Facebook, and they're saying, oh, now we'll do a YouTube channel. It's another thing to do. That's not what UG Studios is. UG Studios is going to be interviews, how to play games. It's going to be what's happening behind the scenes at trade shows that the public can't go to. It's going to be uh, online games where we're going to create programming and game shows, and people will be able to watch and see people play games that we invent to do online. We're going to have it open to everybody. And if other game companies want to give us content to put on the channel, if uh, Hasbro wants to have the Hasbro Hour, from one to two in the afternoon on Saturdays and Sundays, or Play Monster wants to have Play Monster Presents, and they want to do it 7 to 8 p.m. Monday nights, what we'll do is we will eventually be able to live stream this, but to start with, we'll tape it and we'll release it on a schedule. It's going to be very similar to how television started in the 1950s. Um, that's our plan. And I don't think anyone else in the toy industry is, is trying to do this. I think we will be doing something new, different, and unique, just like we did with RU Game in 1998. Well, Bob Moog from University Games, this sounds like a lot of exciting stuff, a lot of stuff to look forward to. This is the Playground Podcast. Tune in next time. <laughs>